Nolan Gray, thank you for coming on, sir. Yeah, Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Dad. Absolutely. So, the biggest reason I wanted to have you on, um, w- working in Lexington. So you're you're native Lexingtonian, uh, but your work experience. Um, you're now a research fellow with Mercatus Institute, correct? Yeah, the Mercatus Center, George Mason University. But for formerly Manhattan City Planner. Yeah, so uh, New York City. Yeah, I was actually assigned to Queens. Gotcha. Yeah. But you're native Lexingtonian, so right. I, I would assume some of that perspective that you've learned in your education and working in Manhattan um, reflects a little bit back for you on some of our housing struggles here in Lexington. Yeah. So... Yeah. <laughs> This is sort of a crude analogy, but <laughs> working as a realtor in Lexington, trying to help help buyers find houses and help sellers sell their houses, um, I myself am in tune with the market, but but just in terms of of how it looks from that perspective. So I might be a fish, and you might be a marine biologist, right? I swim in water, but you study it. That's a cool analogy. Yeah. yeah. So w- w- what? <laughs> What's the lay of the land as far as I, I know the 2016 census? I know U of L did some research uh, after the census that, and they predicted that Lexington was going to add approximately 18,000 people every year between now and 2040. So that that amounts to about 400,000 people uh, by 2040, additionally in Lexington. Um, and so we have we have to have somewhere to put those people. But we just voted not to expand the urban, urban service boundary, uh, and it seems like what's happening here is. Our inventory is low. Demand just keeps getting pushed up and up and up and up. And and, and I'll tell you just from my experience, I, I've got six buyers right now that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them, we've offered on three different properties. We've gone above asking price on all three. And someone who was putting more money down or someone who was a cash buyer was able to outbid us irrespective of appraisal, right? Mm-hmm. So... Help set the scene if a little bit, if you will, as far as what are the housing challenges facing Lexington today and going forward. Yeah, you know, I think Lexington has a great problem in a way. A lot of people want to live here. The city's incredibly prosperous. The fundamentals are strong for Lexington, right? Our key industries: healthcare, education, uh, you know, administration. Increasingly, a small but growing tech sector. Those are all going to be growing in the next, uh, you know. 20 to 50 years. Uh, meanwhile, a lot of Kentucky was kind of stagnant. I mean, my parents moved from uh, downtown Louisville when Louisville was a much tougher place uh, on my dad's side. And then my mom's side was from uh, Martin County, Kentucky. I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, a little bit closer to Warfield, somewhere between Warfield and Lovely. Got it. Uh, Got it. Warfield's a little more aptly named than Lovely. Um, I love them, if anyone's listening. Uh, but <laughs> so a lot of people are moving from from these places and so the, the city's absorbing just a massive amount of, of new residents and and this is a good thing right i mean lexington is a beacon of like growth and health in a state that you know historically has a lot of issues um you know and the 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 challenge i think is accommodating this this surge and you know this is a challenge all over the country you know we hear a lot about california housing affordability we hear a lot about boston or new york city but you know at a much smaller scale this is an issue in every major growing city um, especially in places in the Sun Belt and places like Lexington. Um, so the city, there's a big debate, you know, of course the, the urban growth boundary, which essentially says you can't build past a certain point outside of downtown is kind of the main focal point. You know, the idea of it is we need to preserve, uh, the horse farms, which are a key part of like our cultural identity and our, our industry. And, you know, there's a fair debate to be had about the trade-offs there. 
Um, but realistically, you know, that's sucked so much of the air out of the discussion that we can't really have a conversation about, well, we can build more housing within the urban growth boundary and we can have a discussion about expanding or how we're going to manage that. But even in the meantime, we can build more housing within Lexington. So I, I, I read some of you writing on, um, strong towns, um, and city lab. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the things that you discussed was the green belt. Um, and the history of that, I didn't realize that Lexington was the first city to have a green belt in the United States. Yeah, that's right. So you talk to me about the, de- the decision making. And I know you're, you've written about this on why we decided to do that to begin with. And wh- what was the impetus for that? Yeah, when Lexington was a much smaller city, of course, most people worked, you know, in or immediately adjacent to the horse industry. And the idea of tract housing coming out into horse country was potentially a threat to this key industry. Of course, now the horse industry is still absolutely important to Lexington, but it's not this major employer uh, in the way it once was. Of course, most you know Lexingtonians work for the hospitals or University of Kentucky or, 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 or Lexmark or Big S Vans. Or there's so many. The, the economy is so much more diverse now that we're we're much less dependent on a handful of key kind of industries. And so there's this tension of, you know, well, should we allow for incremental growth? of the urban growth boundary. And it hasn't been expanded in decades. The vision was, you know, we would set up an urban growth boundary and then incrementally expand it to accommodate new population growth. And in Oregon, Oregon's a state where, as I understand, every city has to have an urban growth boundary. And they do actually incrementally expand it to accommodate new kind of, you know, uh, affordable tract housing to be developed over time in response to population growth. Um, and so in Lexington, the policymakers have basically decided we're not gonna expand it at all. Um, and because in a place like Lexington, this is the main source of new housing, this has caused certain issues. Now we can keep having that argument. And I think there is an important argument to be had there about whether or not we're going to expand it to accommodate new growth. But in the meantime, we can be talking about other ways to add new housing. So your position is not necessarily, we absolutely need to be expanding the urban service boundary and the concerns about the green belt are overblown. Because to me, I think people feel a sense that the horse farms are a big part of Lexington's cultural identity, yeah. a big part of, of the reason why people want to move here and be here other than lack of employment opportunities where they're moving from um, is what this place is and what it represents. And they can drive out through the horse farms and the bluegrass region and all that. Um, and there's some concern that if you, you lose the city's identity, it becomes less attractive. Mm-hmm. Um but there's even if you accept the premise that we shouldn't expand the urban service boundary and really respect that green belt, there's still a lot can be done in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's you know most of the city, of course, Lexington was built out '50s, '60s, right? I mean, this is until then, Lexington was really a small farming town. And what's happened since World War II is it's become this major service sector, information intensive economy. Um, and so we kind of have a status quo where we have a lot of very low density housing back when land was abundant um, and housing costs were super low. And I think the challenge is going to be how do we sort of incrementally and sustainably build, you know, at higher densities within the city itself and cities all over the country are having this challenge. What, what do you think accounts for the lack of inventory right now, irrespective of not infill being a problem, but why are people not selling their houses now? The people that do live here and do own property. I mean, this is a challenge. Uh, it's a generational challenge, I think. You know, I think boomers are less interested in kind of downsizing and moving into maybe 
smaller homes or, or moving into condos. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily know why. I think it's a cultural thing. Um, you know, because in a way, like, we don't actually have a floor area shortage, potentially, right? So, like, there are all these large homes uh, which are essentially only occupied by maybe one or two people. And the two or three kids that they had that once filled, once filled all those rooms have moved out. Um, and, you know, there's no real mechanism for sort of basically being like, if you have extra bedrooms, here's how we can rent them out or something like that. Um, so you have all this kind of unused capacity in a way. Um, but of course, you can't like force people to like sell their homes or move out. I, I, my experience, so in Lexington, you have like first time homebuyer neighborhoods and then you have step up neighborhoods then you have McMansion neighborhoods, and then you have old money neighborhoods, uh-huh. right? So for folks like myself, I probably would have leased my house out already or sold it, and my house would probably be good for a first-time home buyer. The issue is the next sort of step up for me, property values or home price market prices have increased on those properties so much that mm. I almost feel stuck here like yeah. it, it, it i could sell my house and i could cash that equity in or i could lease my house i could cash some of my savings in and buy that next thing but the next thing isn't enough of an incremental jump mm-hmm. to justify taking that step well that's a really interesting point you know i mean there's there's a lot of concern so when the cities are facing these challenges you know one kind of option is well let the market build a lot more housing um and the critics will say, oh, well, all the new housing is really expensive. Um, even if all of the new housing is expensive, uh, people are moving into those units. And if they're local uh, already, they're vacating, an existing, they're vacating an existing unit somewhere further down in the market, right? So exactly like you were just saying. And so there's actually been research on this. There's a great paper by an economist, Evan Mast, who actually looked at this and, and, and said, you know, if you follow these chains back, do they go to the bottom of the market, right? So like, are units that are super affordable, uh, are people moving out of those units and thereby relieving pressure at the point of the market where it's most affordable? The answer is no. The answer is yes, actually. So if you follow the chain all the way back, so you have a brand new unit, let's say a wealthy family moves into that brand new unit, an upper middle class family moves into their old unit, a middle class family moves into their unit, you can follow that all the way down to the bottom of the market and that relieves pressure at the bottom of the market. So it reduces rents at every scale, or it reduces housing prices at every scale. The idea is that there's this, these chains. So the idea is that the housing market's actually much more integrated than we think. So when, so when somebody says, uh, all right, I'm going to build a building and it's going to have a bunch of luxury condos in it, right? And people will say, well, that's not going to do anything for the affordable housing, you know, or the starter home market, right? But then there are all these kind of people kind of waiting in the wings to actually maybe move out of their starter homes and move into a nice new condo or nice, a nice new townhouse or a home or something like that. And if you don't build that new home, they never vacate their unit. It's exactly like you were just saying. Right, right, right. right, right. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So the lack of the ability to step up is part of what's driving the lack of first-time homebuyer properties. I think it's, yeah. I mean, you know, the market historically in Lexington did build a lot of starter homes, right? Yeah, historically, yeah. but not now. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I feel like we see too, I, that might run counter to that, and maybe you can speak to this, is... Once you cross that $400,000 threshold, properties tend to set. It, it takes longer to move property like that in the market. Obviously, in a city like Lexington, part of that is natural because you have a smaller pool of buyers than you do 
there's less people that can afford a four hundred thousand dollar house than can afford a two hundred thousand dollar house, right? Mm-hmm. But but apart from that, we've seen a slowdown in stuff over four hundred thousand dollars. But year over year, anything under two fifty is still rapidly increasing in value. Like I paid one hundred and forty thousand dollars for my house in twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. If I were selling it tomorrow, it would sell for two hundred five. Mm-hmm. Five years. That's crazy. Yeah. And if you look at that the amount of equity that's been gained here as a percentage, you haven't seen that in properties over 350, 400. Yeah. So it could just be from where's the demand coming from, right? So if, if if you still are actively experiencing this influx of young families, or maybe let's say UK or transy grads who are starting families, that just means you have a constant influx of people who are just not at that stage in the market. Or I would say, too, people moving from rural communities probably don't have as much equity built up in their property because they're lower density, right? Yeah. And when they move here, they don't have that equity to cash in to buy a more expensive property. They kind of insert themselves into that same first-time homebuyer market from students who graduate. Well, for for them, a a starter home in Lexington is a step up from, you know— Precisely. A a moderately priced ranch house, uh, you know, in in Martin County, (laughs) right? I, I would also say that— as you said before, historically, Lexington, we've constructed starter homes, but we don't anymore because lots are so expensive that it's not it's not profitable to build homes like that. People are building homes where the footprint of the home takes up a huge percentage of the lot now, and they're listing those homes for three fifty four hundred thousand dollars because if they're building starter homes with the with the actual cost of the land, it's not profitable. To build starter homes, what do we do about that? Well, I mean, I think the the lowest thing for here is to reevaluate zoning requirements that force basically housing quality to be higher than the market might actually require. So the most common regulatory mechanism that raises housing costs is what's called minimum lot size. So basically the the you can't subdivide a lot into a parcel smaller than let's say seventy five hundred square feet or five thousand square feet. You know, so if you actually look at many historical neighborhoods, you know, you you might actually see a lot of modest starter homes that are on 2,500, 3,000, 3,500 square foot lots, right? And if it's a if it's a thousand square foot home or a 1,500 square foot home, that's perfectly fine. And you know, land is such a huge element of the actual like final housing cost, right? Especially in a market where, um, you know, labor costs are cheap and and materials are cheap. You know, we're not in California, right? You know, thank God we're. Um, there are all these other factors that drive up housing costs. You know, here in Lexington, it's 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 probably pretty affordable to to crank out one of these new units, right? But but you are going to have these large issues that are going to be driven by potentially like regulation. So if you have a minimum lot size saying maybe it'll pencil to build, uh, let's say two three thousand square foot lots and put you know thousand square foot houses on each, maybe that would pencil. But if the minimum lot size is six thousand square feet, then you have you know a seven thousand square foot. Uh, parcel that you're trying to develop you can only build one house there and it has to be one larger house so that you know not only is reducing the number the amount of new supply that's coming online but it's also meaning that the final product is going to be this much more expensive home and so if that pencils you know it'll still sell but it's not going to be doing nearly as much to address housing demand as if you could build two smaller lots especially if the demand is focused as it seems to be in lexington at this starter home sub two hundred thousand, uh you know bracket it's also true, and this is not specifically true in Lexington, but it is, it's true anywhere and it's true in Lexington, that 
starter homes are subsidized a lot more, and there's more programs out there for people to buy starter homes than there are to buy step-up homes, right? So you have FHA loans, you have Kentucky Housing Corporation, you have down payment assistance, mm-hmm. and there's there's good options for first-time home buyers, but it, it tends to oversaturate the that market for first-time home buyers. We have, you just have more dollars chasing the same amount of supply. Right. right? Yeah. When that supply is already kinked. Right. Right. So broad view, if 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 I were to give you a magic policy one with infinite political capital, um, what are the first things that you would do here in Lexington? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think the first thing is, it seems like, you know, I think number one, we need to incrementally expand the urban growth boundary. That's number one. I mean, I, I would I would pick that because I think politically, I don't think it's something that will happen in the near future. I think looking over the past few decades, it's clear that there's not an appetite for it. Um, the special interests that support it in its current form are robust enough for the near future that it's probably not going to be expand, expanded. Um, so you got to really take advantage of the magic wand. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm picking based on not what I think is going to solve the house. Like, I don't, if we incrementally expand the urban growth boundary and do nothing else, that's not going to like solve like housing affordability issues. Uh, but yeah, from like a political difficulty perspective, that's something like I would look into. Uh, I mean, I think the other big challenge is we're going to have to do a lot more infill. You know, I mean, I think it's it's easy to build a new house out in the middle of a bunch of farms where there's no neighbors and nobody really cares. It's hard to build more housing where people already live and they're already attached to the way things are. Um, you know, in Minneapolis just recently, they basically scrapped single family zoning citywide. And so in Minneapolis, 70% of the city was subject to single-family zoning, which basically said you cannot build anything more than a single-family home. You can't build a duplex. You can't build a triplex. Uh, it has to be the single-family home that was originally built there. And, you know, historically, before zoning, it was actually quite common that, you know, as housing prices went up and as the demand for housing went up, people would take these large homes and they would subdivide them. You know, my, my grandma grew up in Old Louisville. Before Old Louisville was a super posh uh, <laughs> neighborhood. Right. right. Um, and it was all mansions that had been divided up into four or five apartments. And her and her mom and her sister lived in, you know, two bedrooms of a subdivided apartment uh, or a subdivided mansion. Right. And, you know, this isn't the, the, the kind of housing that, you know, that people fantasize about. But this is like this was getting them housing near jobs and near opportunity. And it gave them an opportunity to move to the city. And it relieved pressure elsewhere in the market, right? So they didn't have to go out and bid up prices somewhere else. So I would say the second big thing would be to kind of critically reevaluate single-family zoning, which which keeps so much of the city such, such that you can't actually build anything new. And, you know, this isn't this wouldn't necessarily result in, in a lot of people necessarily moving. This would actually be a boom, uh, a boon to many current homeowners in the sense that they could now say, you know, let's say you're boomers, right? You're a couple, you had three kids, you moved out, you now have this big mansion. You really don't want to move. You're comfortable where you are. Um, but you're having trouble maybe covering property taxes or maintenance or things like that. Uh, if you were to get rid of single family zoning, you would now have the opportunity to say, well, you know, maybe we could turn the garage into an extra apartment. Or maybe we could divide the house in half and turn it into a duplex. Or maybe we could add a few units here and there. And these people could help us cover all these new expenses. So this is, in many ways, is an opportunity, and this is why it's actually becoming more popular around the country. So you're talking about going from single family to, to multifamily. Mm-hmm. 
but I would I would assume, given your philosophy, that you would be for mixed use as well and not just multifamily. My philosophy is that I, I think in many cases we tend to over-regulate land use. Uh, we don't know the optimal land use mix, right? I think we there's this 20th century idea of we can sit down and map out which land uses go where and what densities are appropriate where. Um, and I, I think that there's a knowledge problem here. You know, we cities change over time. The, the demands that people have change over time in ways that are hard to be predicted. Um, and what we need is a land use system that addresses the key issues, negative externalities and things like that, but then allows these other sort of elements of the market to evolve and transform and, and change over time. I think a real challenge for Lexington is that in many parts of the city, we kind of have the zoning code that was written in the 50s and 60s for a much smaller, much more different city. And if we don't kind of have a reality check and say, like, there need to be some fundamental changes here, then the city, it's going to be, you know, an adult wearing kids' clothing. I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to, like, it's not sustainable. Uh, yeah. I, I see an incentive problem where planners aren't approaching things from the same way that you are. You, you have interest groups on one side of the table and interest groups on another side of the table. You've got folks who don't want their neighborhood to change whatsoever. They just want to see that equity keep exploding. Um, and then you have developers who have agendas for specific pockets here and there, but really their interest is their own projects, right? And then you have planners who are just sort of responding to, to political incentives from different groups no one's stepping back and taking that view from 30,000 feet and saying what's really appropriate mm. that maybe they say that they are, or, or they pretend to, but the reality is that that's difficult. Yeah. Everybody's responding to something and someone, and these people live in Lexington too. So how do you begin? How do you begin to have that conversation with people who live in areas where say they're close to downtown density's fairly low they've lived there for 40 years these people are not bad people they're mm -hmm. not mean they're not vindictive they don't hate anyone they just have lived there for a long time and they're out of touch with how much the city has changed mm -hmm. and they're not driving that they they feel like the space in this world that they've occupied is, is sort of being invaded. Yeah. How do you have that conversation with people and say, maybe it's for the best that your city's not, your, that your street is not a historic neighborhood? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, you kind of touched on a few really interesting points there, which is that this is an extremely difficult problem because we've set up housing to where we've, we've encouraged people to think of housing as an investment. Yeah. Um, right. Which, it can be in a certain sense, um, but but also if we have public policy that's purely trying to raise housing costs, um, you know this is this comes with uh, benefits and costs. So it's it's purely to your benefit if you're a current homeowner to say how do we build as little housing as possible, right? Because if you perpetuate scarcity, of course, the value of your assets going to go up, right? At the same time, of course, we have like this constant problem of like, well, what about all the renters or new households who want to become homeowners, right? Like, or 
you know, what about all the people that want to move to Lexington but can't afford it? Um, so, like, we've created this kind of tension, and, and there's, like, a bigger problem there with, which I think has to do a lot with federal housing policy. We don't need to go there. But, um, I mean, I think, I think planners in Lexington actually are doing pretty good work on this. So the city in 2018 passed a new comprehensive plan, which is meant to, like, guide um, the growth of the city. Uh, and they, as part of this process, they go out and they talk to a lot of people and they say, you know, what do you see as the strengths of the city? What are some of the weaknesses? What are some things that over the next 10 to 20 years we should really work on addressing? And they actually found a lot of buy-in among people for infill development. I mean, most people know like Lexington's growing. We need to build more, you know, apartments, more townhouses, more starter homes within the area that we already have. Um, the trick is when you get to an actual specific project. Um, this is kind of what I write about, right? In some of this recent work is that infill's great in theory, but then when somebody says, okay, cool, I, I would like the permits cause I'm going to build an apartment building here. Then everyone else around them kind of freaks out, uh, and they're able to kill it. Uh, and so you need a mechanism that says we've reached this consensus that we're going to ease up on certain regulations that are blocking new development. And we need to kind of, you know, not allow sort of random people to come in and and sort of disrupt this process um which i know sounds anti-democratic in one sense of the sense of well we're not going to have these public hearings where random people can show up and argue but it's very democratic in the sense of well we did this comprehensive plan and we went out and asked people what's your vision for lexington and they told us right they told us we want to build a city that remains affordable and that remains open to newcomers and things of that nature i mean i think that the the we do have this this tension where we've, we've kind of told people the thing that you've bought into is going to stay the same forever. Um, but, you know, this is not what a healthy community does. A healthy community does not stay the same forever. It grows and it changes and evolves over time. And sometimes it faces challenges, but, you know, and this is something that people should rise to the challenge of and try to make their neighborhoods better. Um, but sometimes it can get better. Sometimes new development can make neighborhoods healthier and more diverse. I mean, nobody wants to be in a neighborhood where... Uh, everyone is in their age bracket, right? No one wants to be in a neighborhood where there's no children. Uh, you, know, well, you, you, you would be surprised. <laughs> fair, sure, fair. But I, I would say in general, people want to be in these healthy, you know, communities that are changing and evolving and growing. So you really believe that most people want to be in a neighborhood, an area that's constantly changing, growing, evolving. And, and let me just say, co coming from a, a dry county in eastern Kentucky, <laughs> I don't think that's true. Where are you from? Louisa. Louisa. Oh, yeah. You're, you're really close to my, uh, my mom's side. 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I was in a band with kids from Martin County in high school. <laughs> like, that's... Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a lot of kids that I went to high school with. Some of my closest friends actually lived closer to Sheldon Clark High School than they did to Lawrence County High School. Man, you're dropping these things that I like never hear. Yeah, <laughs> Sheldon Clark yeah, High, yeah. right? Yeah, formerly Sheldon Clark. I don't even know what it is now. They they, um, they condemned that high school, right? Yeah, I heard about that. I haven't been following it. I yeah, don't know. I haven't either. I feel guilty about it, but I haven't either. Yeah, I know they don't have they don't have clean water in Martin County. Yeah, I heard about that kind of a point situation out there. Yeah, yeah. and no one cares. Unfortunately, yep. yep, no one cares because it's in Eastern Kentucky. Right. Anyway, so and no one cares. Let's talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I will say I I was showing a house the other day, mm. pretty close to the middle of downtown. And 
there was there was a nosy neighbor out checking us out, viewing the house, and she was explaining to us how people wanted to come in, buying houses up, leasing them out. They wanted to start doing an infill on the street. And she's like, well, that's why we, that's why, you know, a couple of years ago, we decided to get this, this historic neighborhood designation, which to me is like, if, if you're going to do that, you should at least have the veneer mm. of an attempt to have actual historic preservation to, to coming out and just saying to some random real estate agent who's on your street. Yeah. We just didn't want our street to change. That's as bad as it gets to me, but it's, it's really, I think transparent representation of, of how a lot of that happens, mm. which is not to say that there aren't authentic historic properties in downtown Lexington that ought to be preserved. I mean, some of those Victorian houses, we don't build houses like that anymore. Yeah, sure. Right. Um, but no one's saying, tear down the courthouse the old courthouse right i mean right and they're rehabbing it and all that but i do think that people just transparently will use by hook or by crook whatever mechanism that they can to get their neighborhood not to change yeah i mean usually you look at a lot of these h1 districts which are the historic districts here in lexington a lot of times they're in immediate response to a specific project yeah i mean that's what's going on over on uh nicholasville right now what project is that uh, so th there was some discussion of development along Nicholasville Road uh, over in those neighborhoods, pretty close actually to, um, I believe it's Central Baptist. So Southland Drive area. Yeah, yeah. Just south, uh, uh, well, I guess north of it, closer to downtown. Okay. Yeah. So that's where I was. Yeah. That's exactly where I was. Right. So right. this is um this is what you were touching on uh, in your most recent article, correct? Is Lexington turning against infill? Yeah. Um, so... Can you can you tell me a little bit about where you're coming from with this article? I, I feel like most people here probably haven't read it, but yeah. should. Some people don't read my work. It's really disappointing. It is unfortunate. Um, so they have to just listen to me talk. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, essentially, as I was saying earlier, you know, we did this big comprehensive plan rewrite. And, you know, we found a lot of consensus for building more housing within the city itself, redeveloping properties that maybe made sense in the 1920s or 30s, but don't necessarily make sense today. Uh, but what we found is in practice recently, a lot of these, you know, decent proposals just kind of get shot down or neighborhood groups managed to kill them. Um, and, you know, there was, of course, the big fight over on East Maxwell, where they were going to tear down a handful of just incredibly dilapidated homes that were already being used for student housing. And build a new 575-bed uh, uh, student housing uh, development. Yeah, nothing says history. <laughs> like a like, like this right traffic here. cone on a... <laughs> <laughs> I love the... Um, the uh, Shoot, what is that? Like the Little League, like little camper chair on the balcony. <laughs> is this a fraternity banner here? What is this? Uh... I think that actually, there used to be a law firm in the... Free internet, no application fees. Three to nine bedroom houses. Wow, history. Um, so, I mean, look, I mean, yeah, these these are interesting homes, but the idea that that redeveloping these properties to allow more housing literally across the street from campus is something that the city can't sustain is just a little crazy, right? 
I wonder if this is not all neighborhood people who live in the neighborhood, but investors who own some of these student rental properties who are trying to prevent competition. Well, if you actually, there was a Herald Leader write-up of the uh, public hearing, and there actually was a landlord over on Hagerman Court, Hagerman Alley, mm. as we called it, um, who was uh, nimbing or, you know, not in my backyard. He was fighting this proposal. Um, but then you have the, I think it's the Aylesford Place Association over there, uh, their neighborhood group. They were also kind of fighting this. Um, but, you know, this is the really difficult situation that Lexington's in. We all agree we need more housing. We need to build it close to downtown, close to campus. But then when the rubber hits the road and we have a application, it gets killed. And this project's dead. It's not going to happen. Yeah, so, so I would argue that most people do want to live in a changing, growing, dynamic city. But maybe they don't want their own neighborhood to change. Sure. Yeah, I think that's right. So you mentioned NIMBYs. Getting back to first principles here, I don't think... Um, we have a lot of political discussion on a, a national level. People go back and forth, and there's a lot of discussion of, of philosophy. But I don't think market urbanism is something that most people have that much awareness of. Uh, as far as there's one school of thought that says that has a certain set of principles and there's another school of thought that has a certain set of principles and they're at odds with each other. I think most people are just responding to their own incentives and don't see it as a philosophical or ideological battle in general. Um, so you would call yourself a market urbanist. Mm -hmm. For folks who have never even heard that term, what does that mean? Yeah, at a really basic level, it just means applying kind of uh, market-oriented thinking and ideas to the issues facing cities. So housing affordability, mobility, how you get around, how you deal with traffic, things like that. So how is that expressed more specifically? Yeah. Well, I, I think you're totally right. I mean, the point about most people are not ideological about a lot of these issues. I think that's absolutely right which I think explains why conservatives and progressives are equally likely to show up at a public meeting and try to kill like a new housing proposal right. on their right. block, right? Um, I mean, in practice, this means a few things. So if you, if you actually look at, you know, how cities are run and how they're planned, most cities are pretty heavily regulated from Lanny's perspective. Um, every square inch of the city is going to be zoned, and that's going to tell you what you can build and where and at what densities. And um, we don't really tolerate this really extreme level of regulation really in any other part of the economy. But then when local land use is kind of at play, then we have this kind of weird, like extremely regimented system. And so the market urbanism perspective is, you know, how can we liberalize this to improve people's lives, reduce housing costs, make it easier to get to work, things like that. So magic policy wand infinitely would you just eliminate zoning altogether i think uh yeah i think zoning is uh it's holding cities back more than anything at this point you know i think that there there were certain reasons that that zoning were was adopted i mean many of which are not that great right i mean a lot of cities adopted zoning as a way basically to segregate cities so what happened in 1916 after buchanan v worley um, which was the Supreme Court decision which turned down actual racial zoning. A lot of cities were scrambling and saying, how do we find a way to still segregate cities? 
And what that turned into was what we now call zoning. Um, so that was at play. And there was also kind of a, a, a bit, you know, we have this idea of zoning as like, someone's got to look out for the greater good. If you actually look at the early history of zoning, a lot of the people pushing for it were actually large property owners. So if you own a lot of office buildings in downtown, new supply coming online is going to, you know, relieve pressure on the market and actually reduce rents. So from your perspective, you want to just stop any new development. And that was a major contributor to early zoning, especially in places like New York City. I mean, in New York City, you had the Equitable Building, which was a really massive building get built on Broadway, flooded the market with new office space. Uh, and so all the other commercial landlords are like, well, you've lowered the value of our properties by reducing rents. The problem is that from a consumer perspective, that's actually really good, right? If you're an office tenant, you want low office rents. If you're in... Uh, if you're renting an apartment, you want low residential rents. If you're going to buy a house, you want low housing prices. So essentially your perspective is consumer-centric. I think that's fair to say. Um, I mean, I think, I don't, th I, I think that this is not like a consumer versus like a, you know, current property owner tension because everyone's going to be a consumer at some mm -hmm. point. You know I mean? Like I think about my parents, right? And my parents have basically a, um, a home that at one point made sense for them. Um, and now they're looking to downsize. And we're looking around Lexington and we're saying, you know, a lot of these like smaller spaces that might actually make sense for a retired couple are, you know, not necessarily the most competitively priced because they're competing, of course, against all the other retirees. They're competing against, uh, you know, young families. Um, and they're in a market context where for, you know, market reasons, but also for regulatory reasons, a lot of new starter homes aren't being built. So I hear a term thrown around just on message boards and strong towns and city lab, which is yimbyism, which is the opposite of nimbyism. <laughs> Talk to me about yimbyism. Yeah. So especially on the coast, the housing affordability issue has gotten completely out of control. I mean, you look at the Bay Area and the median rents are just absolutely bonkers. Um, and this really has kind of led to a humanitarian crisis. I mean, I don't mean to be overdramatic, but you look at homelessness and you look at people having to double and families having to double and triple up and you look at people having two-hour commutes i mean i mean this is a real crisis um so over the last few years there's been a response to this and said you know well one of the main reasons that we have this housing affordability crisis is that we're simply not building enough housing to reflect rising populations and rising incomes so this gives given rise to yimby which basically says yes in my backyard you know in opposition to the standard NIMBY, like not in my backyard attitude that a lot of people have. So this has really taken off in California, spreading around the country to uh, the Northeast, places like New York have large and growing groups. Um, but even here in Lexington, um, there are, you know, communities that are forming around, we need to build more housing. It seems to me that that relies on a philosophical understanding of, of markets uh, applied to ha housing. Uh, and that might be a little bit of a tough sell for some people. Yeah. So what's the, what's the strategy to get people to, to understand why they should have that perspective? I mean, I, I don't think that there's a huge ideological lift here. You if, don't, if you think that suppressing new supply in a context of rising demand, is going to raise prices, then you should be a Yimby. 
<laughs> right? Like the population's growing. We are not building nearly enough housing to accommodate that. Housing prices are going to go up. The only way you get out of that trap is to build sufficient housing. And, you know, I think that this is such a basic sort of like, okay, duh, right? Like kind of insight that you have a Yimby movement that actually is incredibly diverse. I mean, it's based in California, so most Yimbys are probably progressives or, or left of center. You know, but nationally you have conservatives who are bought into this from a property rights and economic opportunity perspective. You know, you have progressives who are into this from, a, you know, preventing, uh, you know, housing costs from going up and putting a burden on working class families and the issues of segregation. So there's a lot of reasons why people come to this issue. But this sort of basic insight of like, oh, okay, demand and supply are completely out of whack in certain markets. It really doesn't require like, you know, you to be bought into like whole ideology. I agree it doesn't require you to be bought into a whole ideology, but specifically there has to be a willingness to put a set of principles in terms of what you believe is right, in some cases ahead of your own personal interest. That that's the es essence of nimbyism to begin with, was right. Regardless of it's what the opposite, you, right? regardless yeah. of what you think is right, you pursue your own interests, or maybe you're ignorant of what is right of what is right. Right? Mm -hmm. So Yimbyism is you put you put what is right ahead of your own interests. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in many cases, Yimbys are mostly renters, you know? So it is a lot of people who are kind of locked out of the market because okay. of these high prices. Right. Because I, I totally take your point that, right, if you own a house in the Bay Area, the current crisis is really, best on, thing. A, on a selfish level, it's the best thing that could happen to you. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it sucks that, like, people are, like, living in the streets and having these hellish two-hour commutes. But, hey, my investment has, like, doubled and tripled in value. <laughs> right. Right? And so, at a certain level, like, yeah, it is hard to convince that person that we need to change the status quo. But, I, you know, I think even, I think most people are better than that. You know, I think even people who can appreciate these gains to property values can appreciate, like, you know, we, we can't run a society this way. So, bigger picture... One of the conversations that I have to have with people as a buyer's agent is I'm a millennial. I'm I'm an older millennial, but I'm a millennial, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of my clients tend to be millennials. A lot of them tend to be younger than me, first-time home buyers, right? So one of the conversations that I have to have with them, they express interest in buying a house. Why do you want to buy a house? Mm -hmm. And and one of the reasons is they look at housing as an investment. They see rent as throwing their money away. Versus paying a mortgage where they're building equity, right? Do you think we somehow went wrong by emphasizing housing as an investment in general? Mm. I, it, it Maybe that comes with a set of perverse incentives, but to me, when I look at it, I don't see how you get around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually do think that's kind of a hole that we've dug for ourselves. You know, we've convinced people that you you should buy the biggest possible house you can buy park all your money in it, you're building equity, no problem. I mean, historically, housing was much more of a consumption good, right? It was like a car. You would buy it, you would drive it for a few years, you would not expect to make any money off of it, you would eventually sell it for significantly less than whatever you paid for it, and then if you priced out all the maintenance and taxes you had to pay, you definitely didn't make any money off of it. I mean, with most houses in most contexts, this is probably also true too. I would say that real estate has increased in value across the board since the beginning of time. 
it, it, it depends on if you, I mean, so, so most houses, I mean, if you. It, the, so the, so it, the it, land it, itself appreciates, right? The improvements may decrease in value, right? But since the beginning of time, the land has increased in value. That might be more precise to say. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you, you, you also have to price out the property taxes that you're paying over time, the maintenance, things of that nature. I mean, I, my understanding of the evidence is that you're not, you are building equity and you're, you have a store of wealth. And homes are great in times when inflation is really bad. I mean, this is where a lot of this starts is in the 1970s, where people were basically like, okay, inflation is destroying the value of my cash. I need to find like something to put this into that's going to retain value. And in the 70s, a lot of people started doing that with homes. And so they started spending a lot more money on their homes, and they started being a lot more protective about property values. Um, so this is a tension, for sure. Um, you know, I think we do certain things that treat uh, homes as an investment. Um, and, you know, we do certain things to try to help people buy homes. And, you know, there's a bigger, more complicated conversation to be had there. Um, you know, I, I think, it, yeah, that's a tension, right? I, I don't know. There's not an easy answer here. We've built our whole society around the idea that homes are going to go up in value. You look at a place like Japan where it's very different. Um, there's no aftermarket for homes in Japan. The presumption is that when you buy a home, you're going to demolish it and you're going to build your own. So there's only land value. So if land values are going up, then like, yeah, you're, you're building some wealth there potentially. But you're not like expecting your home to like resell. So what you get actually in land use is that most people actually don't really care about like neighboring land uses um, because there's not this presumption that like, oh, I've bought into like a neighborhood with a certain community character. The presumption is like, oh, okay, all this stuff is going to be torn down over the course of the next like 30 to 50 years. Um, so, you know, but these are all like interesting discussions, but like what's the, what's the policy implication there? Of like not like would you say like we shouldn't have like an aftermarket for like used homes right I, I just think it's a cultural difference that makes it difficult I think of course we should yeah I well I think um it's cost prohibitive to build a lot right if there's a home already there why shouldn't somebody want to buy it and move into it um, I mean, well, over the course of 30 years, right, you're going to have to do so much maintenance that at a certain point it crosses a threshold where, you know, in certain cases it does make sense to just demolish and rebuild a home. Um, what I've been told about Japan is part of the reason is earthquakes. So you have two kind of factors at play. The first is that, you know, tremors result in structural damage for so many homes that you kind of just expect that after so many years you'll have to demolish it. But then also to uh, earthquake Kind of building standards have evolved so much over time that there's in the same way there's this expectation of uh you know the the, the home is just going to need to be rebuilt in 50 years 30 years after the term of a mortgage or something like that it would be interesting to look at coastal markets in the u.s right so if you look at certain places in florida where or you know coast like the gulf coast where they get smacked with hurricanes so often i wonder if people you know are thinking the same way where there's not this expectation of like an aftermarket for the home. I don't know. It'd be interesting. It's just I'm 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 two minds about it. I think um you know there's this American dream that we've been sold, but it's also 
politically, I think politicians use home ownership rates as a measure of economic health, mm-hmm. which I don't think is good, right? But in my profession, in my job, it's it's also true that real estate has been a good investment, especially here in Lexington. Mm-hmm. And I have to represent the best interests of my clients, right? Mm-hmm. I can't come to my clients and say, Honestly, yeah, if you, if you buy a house, it, it may or may not increase in value, but you probably shouldn't look at it as an investment. I mean, just buy a house if you want to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> you would not be a very good agent. I don't I don't know I don't know why you would want to buy one. But if you want to buy one, I can I guess I can help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not giving you professional advice. I'm, I'm just right. trying to explore the ideas here. <laughs> I'm not an agent for a reason, okay? Well, I'm a fish and you're a marine biologist, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so, I, the, no, but that's a very good point, right? Which is that the the incentive structure is such that, like, yeah, you looking out for your client is a matter of, like, let me let me find a like great place for you to like invest your money. Like, let me find a house that's going to be an excellent investment. And absolutely, that's like what agents should be doing. That's why people are like hiring them, right? And you know, you say on. that, but we're really not supposed to. Like help people find a good investment? Right. No, it's just... Um, we can we can point out that home ownership rates... Uh, we can point out that home ownership is a better investment than rent, right? Mm. Generally. If you're going to stay somewhere for more than five years. But we're really yeah. not supposed to comment on this house is a good investment, this house is a bad investment. <laughs> Does that rise to like financial advice or what? Like what's the reason? Well, there's the implication of discrimination. Okay. Right? So there certain neighborhoods have certain characteristics, right? Yeah. So if I'm saying, you know, this house is in a, in a good neighborhood, so it's probably a good investment. I mean, the thing that drives whether or not something is a good investment is more than anything else is location, right? And sure. what the potential for the neighborhood is going forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even if I'm purely trying to think about that from the perspective of like, what is a good investment? Uh, there's almost no getting around. Um, there's an element of what makes up the neighborhood. Why is it a good investment? Why is this neighborhood a bad investment? Mm-hmm. And I, to be honest with you, I'm not from Lexington originally. I don't know from one neighborhood to the next necessarily or one street to the next what the racial makeup of a neighborhood is. I, I honestly yeah. don't know because I'm not from here. How incomes are changing over time. Or... What, what, I, I can, yeah. what I can do is, is I can look at sold listings. I can look at comparable properties. I can look at what market trends are, right? In one place versus another place. But we really have to be really, really careful. Essentially, our role is to someone comes to us and says, we want to buy a house. Okay. I'll show you houses. You tell me which one you want to buy. And then I'll help you negotiate how to buy it. Or you want to sell your house. I'll I'll help you get the most money for the property that you want to sell. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just the whole thing is sort of goofy to me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because it it ignores a lot of economic realities. Mm. Of course, people come to the real estate agent expecting them to have neighborhood knowledge, and they they want to talk to a real estate agent about 
is this property a good investment or is this property a good investment? Mm -hmm. But philosophically, I completely understand where you're coming from. And I think, I think the element of specifically home ownership rates has been oversold as an indicator of economic health. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it's a big driver of, of federal policy. I think most likely interest rates are artificially low. I mean, I don't know what the the market naturally would dictate interest rates would be. We're so far off from a natural market, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what the market would say interest rates should be, but certainly um, banks own a lot of real estate. Um, People buy houses and then they take out loans using the equity from those properties. And either they buy more properties or they buy consumer goods, mm-hmm. and the the value that's contained in people's real estate investments is a big a big driver um, in our economy, right? And and there's no getting around it. Um, I agree. It's. I mean, I think the funny thing here too is that I think homeownership rates in the U.S. are pretty middling. I mean, like pretty average among developed countries. You know, even despite this idea of like, oh, well, the U.S. is like this like home ownership like country, right? Like we all have our own little piece of land. Um, I think we're, I think you know we're at like sixty something percent, pretty comparable to like you know Western Europe and you know Australia, New Zealand, Canada, right? Well, I think historically we as a country are um, like resource rich and labor poor, mm. um, which is why wages have been high. But it's mm. it's also true that like. C- our background as an agrarian society was such that land abundant, right? We were land abundant. Yeah. Yeah. It's a better way to say it. Right. So that's inherent in the American dream. Right. I wonder, yeah. I wonder if there's some common things between like the U S and Canada and Australia as like these three countries that like kind of culturally similar and they all are in this context of like, Oh, we have a ton of land. What do we do with it? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like land values are low. Right. Yeah. No, that'd be interesting. And, and or how systematically like a place like the US is different from Japan, where they have extreme like land scarcity. Well, they've been dense for a long time. So if we accept the premise that there's some inherent value to the, the green belt around Lexington to Lexington, um, and further, whether or not we accept that premise that it's unlikely to change. Mm. We have a housing shortage that's only gonna get only gonna get worse. Uh, the only other answer besides expanding the urban service boundary is infill, right? Mm-hmm. What are the things that need to change other than, you know, we talked about these historic districts. What are the things that need to change locally to allow for more infill? And I know you have this this piece here with market urbanism, how Lexington can expand affordable housing without touching the UGB. So it sounds like this is right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I wrote this piece because I was so tired with the conversation just being completely focused on the UGB, um, urban growth boundary. You know, I think that there are a few kind of basic things we can do to make building housing in Lexington easier. The first is the accessory dwelling unit idea. So the idea here, you know, these are also called like granny flats or mother-in-law suites. Um, Essentially, you can take your unused or underutilized garage or your attic or your attached detached garage, and you can turn it into an additional uh, unit of housing. You can have a little apartment. Um, and this is great for a lot of reasons. A lot of people will just, you know, basically let it out to family members and not actually charge them rent. Uh, other people will rent it out maybe to, you know, a young professional or a student or, uh, you know, a downsizing senior resident. 
uh, and they'll use the rent to maybe diffuse costs with their mortgage or cover property taxes, things like that. So there's a lot of reasons why, especially homeowners, would want uh, to allow accessory dwelling units. But also from a housing perspective, this is small, affordable housing that's going, you know, in areas where it might be prohibitively difficult to build housing otherwise. Uh, and so there is some exploration of this now. Uh, the planning department gave a really high quality reform ordinance to the planning commission. They've looked at it. They've approved it. They handed it over to city council. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like there's going to be an owner occupancy requirement. So it's going to basically say you have to live in the house if you want to create an ADU, um, which I think is probably a mistake. But other than now, that... So yeah. you have to live in the house if you want to create an ADU. Correct. Yeah, so in, in most cities that have adopted an ADU ordinance, they say for any single-family home, maybe if it's an investor property or if it's your, if it's a second home or anything like that, you can still subdivide it and create an additional unit. But the Lexington ordinance that's probably moving forward is going to require that you actually live in the house itself, which I think is unfortunate. But other than that, the, or, the ordinance is really high quality, pretty flexible. There are, are, there, are there parking restrictions on it? Uh, there's... Flexibility with parking, my understanding is that the there wouldn't be uh, prohibitively difficult requirements associated with it. So, to be honest, I expected that to be much worse, if that's really the only bottleneck. Because mm -hmm. there are a lot of loan progr programs out there where, in order to qualify for the loan program, to purchase the property, it has to be your primary residence. You can't be purchasing it as purely an investment property mm -hmm. but but usually there's a time limit on how long you have to actually live in the property do we establish so to create an adu you have to live in the the primary residence as your primary residence um how long do you have to be in there i mean there's nothing that says that you can't move into somewhere build an adu and then move somewhere else and if there's an existing adu you can't sell the you can sell the property with an adu right? this is why the owner occupancy requirement is so difficult because there is this question, right? So if I have an ADU built onto my property, and let's say I'm the owner-occupier, mm -hmm. can I sell that to an institutional buyer, right? Uh, like, will they still be able to lease this out, like the ADU out? It's unclear. Um, but I think... I think, well, the, think you have to have the presumption of liberty here, right? Well, for the ADU system to work, you need to not have this owner-occupancy requirement. Um, because, you know, if I am, you know, a large, sophisticated investor, I'm going to say... The value of this property changes significantly if I can rent that ADU out or not, because yeah. this is the difference between one rent and two rents. Yeah. Um, and so, especially people who are looking at ADUs and saying, "Okay, this is a good way to like raise my property values," right? In a way that's like not creating scarcity but actually adding housing. Right. They should be, you know, calling the council member and saying, "I don't want this owner occupancy requirement." Um, there's also, I think, I think even they're just doubling down on it, though. I think that what they're gonna they're gonna require that. To subdivide and create an ADU ordinance, I think they're actually going to require like a deed restriction that would permanently that would require owner occupancy on a permanent basis. Um, so I think they're doubling down on the mistake, unfortunately. So this is there's an inherent problem with this that's not even theoretical. If I, as an investor, own a property and someone lives in the property, there's there's a leaseholder on it. Mm. Um, if I sell the property. The lease survives the transaction, right? You, I can't, I can't purchase a property which you've rented for a, a year lease, but you've lived there for six months. I can't purchase a property and say, "Well, I'm, I'm the new owner. You got to move out." The lease sur survives the transfer of ownership, right? 
So if I have leased out the ADU and I sell it, it has to continue to be an ADU because the lease has to survive the transaction, right? Well, and yep, you're exactly right. And this is where we get in a ridiculous situation where the contract obligations of what was once a legally of what's was once a legally solid contract is now thrown into jeopardy, right? If you were to sell your property halfway through that lease, I don't even know you're going to have to have some terms in the contract for how to deal with that. It just adds a, a total, a, an extra layer of, of complication. And this is why in a lot of cities they've said, okay, well, you know, to diffuse kind of NIMBY concerns, we will require an owner occupancy requirement. But then what happens is very few of these ADUs actually end up getting built because it's, it's, my understanding is there's financing issues, right? So like banks are looking at this and they're like, okay, so we're going to finance you to buy a two property income that might at some point not become a two property income, right? Like how do you, how, how do, you, do you appraise that? Yeah. How do you appraise it? Um, if you're a home buyer and you're like thinking about how to list a property, how do you list it? Do you list it as like the presumption of two incomes or two rents coming in? Do you uh, assume that the owner is going to be an owner occupier? Do you have like two separate prices for the property? Um, so, I mean, back to the main point, ADUs are a really, really great idea and a fantastic way for uh, homeowners to build wealth and then add a lot of housing, particularly in high opportunity areas. Um, I think, unfortunately, the current ordinance is going in a direction that's not that productive. So you think in Lexington, we're going to end up with an owner occupancy requirement such that it's not just the creation of the ADU, it's the existence of the ADU. My understanding is that the planning commission passed it with the condition of owner occupancy. And I understand that the council is going to double down on that. Now, you know, I think that the sort of political sort of work around here is get the foot in the door with an ADU ordinance, because other, other than that issue, the ADU ordinance is really fantastic. The planners did a good job with it. Um, and they, by the way, the original ordinance did not have the owner occupancy requirement. It was added in later. Yeah. Um, but you know, once we get this thing passed, it should be relatively easy to just take a hard look at the numbers and be like, this program's underperforming. We knew coming into this, that the owner occupancy requirement was going to make this thing difficult. Let's scrap it. Camel's, this, camel's nose under the tent. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> There's always a way to fix these things. And, and, you know, so too. the infill question ADUs, your your next subheading, convert downtown commercial zones in, into mixed-use zones. Yeah. Sp speak about that, about Lexington specifically. So, I mean, Lexington's in a situation like a lot of cities where there's probably, like, a, you know, pretty substantial excess of certain types of commercial properties, right? So, with the rise of online retail, Amazon, things like that, certain types of commercial properties just aren't getting leased out anymore, you know, like power centers. There's just an abundance of space along certain streets like Richmond Road or Nicholasville Road. Uh, or, you know, we've seen these, we've seen certain malls kind of go, right? Turfland's gone. Lexington Mall is now a mega Southland, church. Southland, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, one way to sort of kill two burns with one stone is to basically say, if you can, if you want to build housing along those corridors, mixed use housing, potentially, you know, ground floor retail with apartments over top, the city's not going to stop you. Um so that would be a positive change. And, and the many cities already have this where, you know, because there's not an inherent tension between like commercial and residential necessarily for certain buyers. Yeah. It seems like the prospects for that might be a little bit more positive here. There's no element of nimbyism. Right. Yeah. So along these corridors, there's a lot of people just 
don't live there. So right. There's not like a local population yeah. in Nimbia. At the same time, you have pretty sophisticated property owners in most cases who can appreciate that an upzoning would increase their, the values of their property. Uh, so that's good. And then, you you know, there's kind of a, there's a Baptist and bootlegger element here. You right. You build a lot of housing and you can raise property values. Right. So do you see, do you see Lexington making a lot of progress or do you see Lexington falling behind on this? Yeah. I mean, I think that the Lexington is kind of inheriting, uh, inheriting a zoning code that's, that's pretty like restrictive and in a very normal sense. Um, you know, they, they did recently overhaul the B6P zones, which are the zoning districts that apply to uh, most of the mall areas, as well as places like Hamburg, to basically say, if you can build, like, mixed-use housing, um, we're not going to stop you. But I think that's a pretty, like, big, positive improvement. You know, if you can build population hubs at a lot of these, along a lot of these corridors, that also might make transit work, which kind of deals with, then you're killing, like, three birds with one stone, right? You're you're re uh you're finding a new profitable use for these underutilized commercial properties you're building a lot of housing and then you're potentially putting people in places where they might actually be able to like take a bus downtown rather than have to like drive the summit is a good example right mm. so you have you have all these apartments and condos above this commercial district i i don't see though um you know, the Lexington Mall and the Turf, Turflin Mall are obvious examples of, of malls that have failed. But it seems like the Fayette Mall and the Summit are, and the whole Nicholasville Road corridor is busier than it's ever been. Yeah. And and it seems like what you're seeing here is like there's more development in areas that are already busy mm-hmm. as opposed to development happening where there's less less density, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that what you've had is basically... Uh, brick and mortar retail is heavily consolidated around places like Fayette Mall. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's kind of the weird kind of sort of asterisk to the whole dead malls phenomenon is that, yeah, you did have like a lot of malls closed, but then the malls that survived have like mostly done okay, right? Like Fayette Mall seems to be healthier than ever. Um, I'm not an expert in commercial real estate, but it seems to be doing well to me. Uh, I mean, the summit's interesting because I think the summit reflects this sort of changing idea about what retail is going to be. You know, historically, I think we have this idea of like a, a mall, which is only shops and maybe a food court. Whereas I think there's more of a market appetite for these developments that involve a little bit of office space, retail, yes, but then also apartments above. Um, they're, you're more diversified, uh, more sustainable in the sense of you have rents coming from a lot of different sources. Um, there's clearly buyer interest. A lot of people want to live in places that are dynamic and interesting, walkable. And exciting, walkable, right. It's just, you know, you got Brennan, you got the Fayette Mall, you got the Summit, and then you're supposed to drive back and forth on Nicholasville Road. It's just <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, yeah. And then you have you have Tate's Creek, which is, what's the last new thing in Tate's Creek? Uh, I don't get over there that much. Yeah, right. Neither I does anybody else. <laughs> I just go up and down Richmond Road, man. Yeah. It's unbelievable to me Tate's Creek doesn't have a Qdoba or a Chipotle. Wow. Yeah, you should write your council person. <laughs> so, okay. So next you have eliminate parking requirements. Yeah. So, yeah, it seems like we have some archaic park parking requirements in Lexington. Mm-hmm. Um, you can expand on that more so than me. Yeah, I mean, the, the basic idea of minimum parking requirements is that they say for every unit you build, um, you have to build so many parking spaces. 
For every square foot of commercial space, you have to build so many parking spaces. The theory behind this is we need to make sure that there's enough parking for everyone so that we don't have people, you know, taking up spots on the street, yada, yada, yada. Fine in theory. In practice, a lot of this uh, can, can significantly raise the cost of housing. So if you actually look at the cost to build uh, a single parking space in a surface lot, raises the cost of the residential unit by about 10000 If a developer has to build structured parking, that can be anywhere from thirty to 50000 per unit increase in cost. These are very, very, very expensive to build. Expensive to maintain, too. At the same time, you have... So this is, this is raising housing costs at a time when housing costs are already a pretty significant issue. At the same time, you have changing lifestyles. You know, a lot of young people, a lot of retiring seniors are interested in walkability. They're interested in living lifestyles where they don't necessarily need to use a car every day. They might want to walk or bike or, or, or take a bus uh, around town. Um, unfortunately, the zoning code, you know, basically says you have to have a parking space per unit no matter what. And, and this is weird in a sense that this is basically saying like, oh, we know better how much parking each development needs to have than the actual developer and the buyer, right? So the developer, uh, you know, not only has local knowledge about the conditions, but they also have the incentive to get it right. Right. If they don't build enough parking, people don't want to live there. They're not going to be able to sell the units or lease the units. If they build too much parking, um, the rents are, or the final sale prices that they're going to have to collect are going to be much higher, potentially higher than the market. So the incentives are all aligned within the market about how much parking to build. Um, and there's really no need to place these kind of archaic requirements. And I mean, these, as you mentioned, these requirements are pretty goofy, right? Like, so for a single family home, um, you have to build one off-street parking space um, under the standard zone. Um, if you want to build a duplex, though, you have to build four parking spaces, right? So, so you know, you can see how these requirements kind of make it hard to get the kind of infill that we would like to see, right? Like, in a, in a context of, like, a housing crunch, we would think, like, oh, that'd be great. Like, you know, if we have a house that's maybe underutilized in a high-demand area, tear it down, build a duplex. But then we have these parking requirements, which make it, you know, prohibitively difficult. Same with apartments, right? So we have parking requirements for apartments, which basically say like, well, if you want to build a big apartment building, you better like, you know, be ready to also build a pretty large, expensive parking garage. And this can make a lot of projects just simply not pencil. Yeah, not to mention these requirements are not very, very forward thinking. I don't think there's a technologist on the planet that doesn't assume, especially metropolitan areas like Lexington we're not going to have self-driving cars primarily in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we could be, we could soon be in a context where most people don't own their own car. Right. They just wake up, pull up the app, click that they want this ride there. And then a self-driving car comes to them, picks them up, takes them there. Right. I mean, this is kind of like what Uber and Lyft are trying to like converge on. Right. So if you get to that context and at the same time, you're forcing developers to build a ton of off street parking that nobody's using, you know, I, I think that this is like, self-evidently like one of the silliest things that we continue to require and so a lot of cities are actually scrapping minimum parking requirements like all together um hartford connecticut buffalo new york uh san francisco um this is like a in, in cities that aren't like just eliminating them completely or like basically reducing them to where they don't actually like bind anything why do you think we're resisting that here you know i think that there's a status quo bias right um i think this is kind of a, a recurring theme with housing right things are fine the way they are like we don't need to rock the boat i'm happy you're happy i got my own house things are really okay um you know 
I think there's this like inherent conservatism with land use and housing. And I mean that in the small C sense of yeah, yeah, in yeah. the sense of like, you know, people who would identify as progressives in Lexington will still come out and like yell at you if you say like we shouldn't require parking. Even though there's like obvious you know, I come at it from like a housing affordability perspective, but it's all, there's also like an environmental perspective, right? Like why would why would you like be like heavily encouraging or even mandating people to drive when they might not want to? Uh, like this is not Especially from an environmental perspective, you're 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 forcing more emissions, or you're forcing more traffic congestion, um, and so this is kind of like a slam dunk issue. You know, scrap the parking requirements. It's considered best practice now. At least, at least give the discretion to the developers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that if we get rid of parking requirements, there's going to be no parking lots or garages built. People still have cars. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the, the only thing is that we don't know how much needs to be built. We can either mandate it by fiat or we can have this discovery process in which we say, Hey, like figure out how much, how, how many, how many parking spaces you need to build to lease out this commercial space or this like apartment. So uh, this whole discussion is assuming we don't expand it, the urban service boundary. Uh, we don't start to creep in on the green belt. Mm-hmm. Do you think we should expand the urban service boundary? Well, if you look at, for example, Oregon, which is a state that mandates um, uh, an urban growth boundary or something of the kind, um, they, they do incrementally expand them over time in response to population growth. And I think that's the correct way to do it. You know, um, Not everything that's currently covered by the urban growth boundary is, is of vital importance to preserve. Um, I mean, there's also this element, too, that's, like part of the idea is to preserve horse farms, which I can completely sympathize with. Part of it's this idea of we can stop sprawl. Um, but then where's the housing go? It just leapfrogs over the growth boundary or it yeah, goes down yeah, into Justman right. County. Um, you know, where there there's no growth boundary on our southern southwestern border, right? So it's not really stopping sprawl. In fact, if it's if if people were just jumping the boundary and like building tract housing like over in Georgetown and then commuting over, that's actually just making like congestion and emissions and local air quality worse. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for incrementally expanding it. And of course, full disclosure, I grew up on <laughs> an expansion portion of it um, out off of Todd's Road, you know, a portion that was expanded in the early 90s. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a role to be played. We have to build up and we have to incrementally build out. Final thoughts? <laughs> I'm happy with that, actually. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Nolan. Appreciate Thanks. it. Party line. I'm on the party line. The party line. I'm on that party line. Well, there's people that muddy the water. Make it clear There's people want to know where the money went They don't know I'm here You wonder how they found out You trusted your best friend You laid it out and they played it out I'm on the other end Party line I'm on the party line Party line I'm on that party line 
Some girls are having babies, some boys are driving trucks. Some folks are moving to Florida, and I wish them lots of luck. A marriage is nearly over, a preacher's coming to town. A few folks voted for the Democrat, and I can't make a sound party line. I'm on that party line.